Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Ray. Hello. Today, we have Ray Maestro to to talk about his identity loss and overcoming identity stuff, um, catalyzed by, number one, by child abuse, let's just put it as a broad term, and then later it sounds like it turned into a serious mental health issue where you, you know, became suicidal, so we call that severe mental illness. And one of the things that I really um, am looking forward to um, sort of showcase on my platform is how mental illness changes our identity, because in general, a person is one way before, and then certain things happen, and they become another way with severe mental illness. So like, you know, depression, suicidality, um, psychosis bipolar stuff. And one of the things I I really want to sort of a message I want to give to the world is that people don't just end up this way, that there's usually some sort of life circumstances that produces so much stress that our body just sort of flips out and each person be, you know, it happens in a different way. Because a lot of people like they try to make it like genetic and, and, and biochemical and, and I know biochemical stuff's always happening and what causes that. So we're not, this isn't a therapy session or a research session, but I just wanted to put that out there in front for my audience that I am very interested in hearing people's mental health stories because it's a big deal. And and so I'm so glad that you are number one here because you have had, I, I think, numerous suicide attempts. Yeah. And number two, speaking out. So let's just jump into your story. And I hope you don't mind if I interrupt a bunch to sort of like go deeper in in this identity part because, um, you know, people tell their story how they tell it. And then I kind of want certain details. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... but but first of all, I'm sorry, let's just do a regular introduction about like (laughs) who you you are and, and what do you do now? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Uh, well, I've been I've been a, a bilingual host, presenter, MC for over twenty years within the tri-state area, uh, New York and the outskirts, uh, primarily around New York City and the surrounding areas. I host a variety of events, anything from fashion shows to beauty pageants to awards to galas. I, I do some English events, some uh, Spanish events. Uh, sometimes I do motivational speaking, conferences, seminars. I'm trying to raise awareness of child abuse, prevention, um, also uh, suicide, mental illnesses, in particular PTSD. Because I, my childhood, I had many different many different problems. You know, I had a lot of child abuse, but there were other things there. So I try to 
incorporate it all in, in everything public that I do. And um, I'm always looking to network with other individuals and organizations to try to raise awareness, you know, to give people motivation. Right now, a lot of what I'm focused lately is uh, motivating and inspiring other abuse survivors on how to how to survive, how to recover, how to become the best. I've just recently come out with with this, you know, information publicly in the mm. last two years. The last two years. Oh wow! Um, yeah, the, most people don't know about it, <clears throat> um, and a lot of people know me, and uh, very few, only the close ones, really know. And uh, people have just been finding out more about it recently. But um, I was originally going to um, fully disclose everything in 2020, but the uh, it got uh, postponed by the COVID. So um, I've been waiting for about two years. Um, I pretty much fully recovered from my abuse. Uh, so, so hold on, yeah. what, what was it that prompted you to come to this disclosure? Because I know I've interviewed other people um, like with childhood sexual abuse um, and, and lots of you know horrible, really like terrorizing stuff. And, and, and it seems like people do sit on it for like decades. Oh yeah. And, and so what, what prompted you to all of a sudden, maybe, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm assuming it was all of a sudden, what prompted you to say, I'm going to share my message with the world about this? Well, it's a combination of things. Um, my life changed in 2017 after my last suicide attempt. Well, it was, you know, it was more than an attempt. I mean, I actually died. Um, I was dead for a while and then I came back. Part of that uh, rebirth that occurred when I came back was that I had to help people. Mm -hmm. It was God's, God's order, you know, that he, he brought me back and that I had to help people. Uh, he made it very clear that I was not supposed to come back and he made it very clear never again to commit suicide. So <clears throat> after I came back, I decided that I was going to help people in every way I could, not just, you know, raising abuse awareness, but I'm involved in a lot of other things, you know, helping the homeless and helping people get food and encouraging people to get education. But it was a, a mixture of God and therapy. Uh, I went into intensive therapy as soon as, as soon as I had that suicide, as soon as I was discharged from the hospital, I was in an intense therapy for, um, well, I, I recently just ended the intense therapy. So I was in intense therapy for about five years, but I started feeling really good after therapy about two years after I had committed suicide. So around 2019, I started feeling really good, like around um, the fall. And so I made a decision that the, to help people that I would come out publicly with what had happened to me. And so I was all ready to go. I had, um, I had, some acquaintances in, in television and radio and some organizations uh, in mental health. And um, I had a lot of support because I was getting ready to do monthly seminars or weekly seminars or conferences, you know, support groups, whatever it was. And then COVID hit and then it all got put on hold and it all went to Zoom. And so I did some Zoom, but I just, I need the public, like the public needs me. It just it's just more effective in person for me. I I generate positivity to people and people give me positivity. It's a equal exchange. So I need the bodies. I need to be physically present. 
Yeah, so, the, the energy exchange over Zoom isn't quite the same. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same. And so people, they they hire me a lot because they they like having me around. I'm very I'm a very positive person. Very positive. It's very rare for me to be negative. I'm always positive. I'm always encouraging people to become more positive. And I give them positive energy. I give them. Even if they're positive, I make them more positive. If they're negative, I bring them up. I specialize in that. And that's something that I got after I had committed suicide. Because previously, I didn't have that. Mm. After, after, my, after my last suicide, you know, I had committed suicide a couple of times. I did it um, a couple of times as a child. And then later on, a couple of times as an adult. I officially died twice uh, never as a child, but as an adult, I did. And what, so, what does that mean to officially die? Where you go brain dead? Or what does that well, mean? Well, they, they, they bring you back. They bring you back with paddles. You know, you're gone. You, you flatline. You flatline and you just, it, you know, every time I died officially, it was different. Um, like the first time I went into the light and I didn't want to come back. And then, so I got into a habit of that. And um, I mean, I, I tried to stay up there and they, they kicked me out um so I got into a habit of I'm like well this is like magnificent like I don't want to come back I just want to die so you know let's keep dying but on the last time that I did that it was a complete opposite it was absolute hell it was absolute hell and as I was dying I was regretting it you know I died slowly the first time I died I died very quickly but the second time I died slowly and I started regretting it a lot and um you know, little by little, I started losing control of my body. And I, as I was losing control of my body, I was begging, like, I want to live. I want to, I wanted to live so bad. I can barely remember, like, you know, police and, and firemen and, you know, ambulances coming, you know, starting to talk to me. And then by the time they got to me, like, I was out. You know, I, I personally heard my voice, like, fading away. Like, I, I couldn't talk anymore. I was, I was just, I was dying. I was dead. You know, and then, I woke up later on in the emergency room. I don't remember the, the ambulance. I don't remember them picking me up. I don't remember them asking me or taking vitals or anything. It was like a good, you know, eight, 10 minutes before I got to the actual hospital that brought me back. Um, but it was a terrifying experience. And from that, from that experience and from what God said, never to commit suicide again, I, I will never commit suicide again. And I will advocate for people to, you know, stay alive if they've committed suicide to, you know, live a better life. Like it's, it's not the answer. It's just, it's just horrible. It's sort of horrible so in, in those eight minutes where you weren't there, when did you hear the God tell you never to do this again? Or was it after you came back? No, it was, um, I was pretty much going to hell. Um, I had been living a bad life for many years because I was on and off therapy and it just wasn't working right. And, um, <clears throat> I was just in darkness, in complete darkness, and there was just there wasn't light anywhere. And um, at first, what, what does that what does that mean? There's not light anywhere because there's this other woman I'm trying to interview also, and in her written version of the story, she says she would see little <laughs> pinpricks of light, but everything was darkness. So what exactly? What does I, that mean? I, I was like almost in like as I was dying, I was like free falling, and then I eventually landed, and it was just total darkness it was pitch black like you didn't know if it was a cave if it was a valley if it was you know a mountain you know you're just in total total darkness there wasn't light anywhere so you feel like you're just in this big vast dark like you can't even see your own hands I mean it's pitch black um 
And then after a little bit that I was there, you know, I fell down, I was laying down. I couldn't like walk or anything. I was just laying and I felt, and I could hear that there were things coming at me. You know, I could hear like growls, like snarls, like just evil things coming at me. And as they were getting closer to me, you know, this whole time that I'm dying, I'm, I'm saying, you know, God save me, God help me, you know, forgive me. I made a mistake. I want to come back. I don't want to be here the whole time because I always grew up with that, that like always pray. Like God has always saved my life. God is, is present in my life. I'm alive because of God. So many times in my life I've been alive. I've had so many near-death experiences. Only God has saved me. And as these, you could see that they were shadowy, dark figures were ready. To, they, were, they wanted to like pull me away. They wanted to separate. I guess they wanted to take my soul is, is the best way I could say. It. I started feeling them tugging at my feet, scratching my feet, like pulling and making noise, growling. You know, like they wanted to take me away and they started pulling me away. And as I kept saying that, you know, I never lost hope. Mm -hmm. And then in Hebrew, they have a, uh, a word called Hamza. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's, that, that's the hand of God. That's hand of God in, in, in Hebrew. So, which I, I, I had started exploring a little bit before that. So this giant, you know, golden hand scooped me up. And then there was light everywhere. And then I saw all these like black things they were, they were grabbing me, but then they started moving away because they were scared of light. And that, right. that hand, that hand was God starting to lift me up from the darkness. And so I've never seen God. I've only talked to God. So he was telling me things. He's like, you know, you shouldn't have killed yourself. You, you should not come back. You know, I should leave you here. You know, but you are going to go back. I am bringing you back. But it was something along the lines of like, like he almost didn't want to because of like all the times that I had committed suicide and all that. Like he really wanted me to learn my lesson. Mm -hmm. um, and as I was, as he was telling me that he was going to bring me back, he's like, I'm going to bring you back. And he made two things very clear. He said, you will help people. Mm. That's it. In general, he said, mm -hmm. you will help people. That was one. And two, you will never commit suicide again. If you commit suicide again, I will leave you here. I will not bring you back. And then I didn't even have a chance to say, you know, okay, maybe I'm sorry, whatever. But as soon as he told me those things, you know, I came back too in, in the emergency room. I had all these doctors and nurses and everything working on me. And my vision was blurred for a while. And uh, to the right of me, I had the Virgin Mary was there. And I've had friends that in the past, um, when they've had death experiences, the Virgin Mary has saved them. So it was interesting that, I, you know, as I was coming to, she was there for a while and I would talk and she really wouldn't, she wouldn't say anything back to me. But then eventually when my, my vision started coming back, I wanted to like reach out and, and, and touch her or hug her or, or do something. And she just disappeared. Mm -hmm. She just completely disappeared. And then I was just, I was stuck in the emergency room for uh, I don't remember the day or two and then they transferred me somewhere else. Yeah. I, I, it was a terrifying experience to, to, um, to die and then regret it. And like to not be able to come back is just, you know, and I lost, I lost a lot of my fears in life because of that, because of that near death. Like I, I'm almost, I can almost tell you that I, I'm not really afraid of anything now, you mm -hmm. know? So I, I guess that's something positive, you know? Yeah. 
you know, that's, that's my, that's my, you know, last, my last death experience, you know, wow. and I, I don't recommend it for anybody, you know, life, life is beautiful. So let me go back just a little further before that suicide. Yeah. Uh, you, you said that you were living in darkness. Is that what you said? Because that's what this other woman was saying that, her, that during her living, it was so dark that she only saw pinpricks of light. So even um, before that, were you in darkness or what was, what was it like before? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, unfortunately, I originally come from darkness. My parents were very dark, so I grew up very dark. Um, however, I always had God with me. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, how or why, but from the beginning, I always had God and he saved me. But I, because of the, the abuse that I had as a kid, I lived a, a pretty bad life. You know, I was a rude person. I was a mean person. I didn't help people. I insulted people. I used to fight a lot. I was not a nice person. You were abused uh, and you then abused others, which is. Well, I mean, I, not to the extent that like my family did. I mean, I was, you know, by my parents, I was physically, sexually, emotionally, you know, verbally neglected, um, abused, <clears throat> whatever you want to call it from both of my parents. I never did that to the public. I was just, I was always angry. I was mm -hmm. always angry with everybody, including God. For many years, I hated right. God. Right. You know, why'd you, why'd you give me this life? Like, my life sucks. You know, um, everything's terrible. I have all this anger within me, you know, and I had anger for years. Well, yeah, I mean, I with good reason, right? I mean, how could you not? Yeah, I mean, I understand that now after speaking to many highly educated, you know, mental health professionals, like I under, I'm able to understand it now. It took me my whole life to understand it. So let's let's go back and let's yeah. let's hear Ray as a little boy in his childhood. And sort of, so this is one of the, this is a, this is a nuance that, um, I'm not putting this part in my book because it's too complicated, but the new, this, there's this nuance about identity loss where when we're young and we're abused or even when we're like the wrong race, then we are, our, our identity is nipped in the bud and we don't even like get to grow into who we really can be because of these yeah. outside factors. But yeah. given, given that your identity was being nipped in the bud because of this abuse, still like who were you as a little boy and then you, and then your identity sort of shifted because this this rug was like pulled out from under you but over over a period of time you know a chronic ongoing trauma yeah and then and then that eventually started being manifested into in the suicidality right so yeah. can you, you kind of explain like your your younger years and sort of how it how it sort of organically progressed to being this angry person and also this person that didn't want to live. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, and then later, you know, the, well, you already told us the transformation part because that, that last attempt or that last death, you were given a second chance and you're not going to blow it. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Yeah, I mean, my childhood was, like I said, it was really bad. 
I grew up in a very violent home. My both my parents were very violent. My father was a violent alcoholic. My um, both of my parents had mental issues. They had been um, institutionalized uh, as I was growing up. Institutionalized for mental illness. Yeah, yeah. My mother was twice. And my father was once. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's something that's it's very common in, in my family that I've had a lot of family members that have been institutionalized in the past. So I and, grew and, up, and you had other siblings or are you the only kid? No, I have an older brother. Okay. Yeah, I have an older brother. I was very shy as a child. I was very to myself, um, mainly because my family told me, you know, don't talk to anybody. Don't give any information out. As a young child, my mother... My mainly my mother brainwashed me. Uh, she would tell me, you know, all mothers are the way I am. All fathers are the way your father is. You know, all, you know, all all mothers get beat up. You know, all kids get hurt. You know, all fathers drink. The, every house has fights every night, um, and it it became normal. It became normal to me, but I never told anybody mm -hmm. because my 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 mother in particular threatened me all the time. You know, she. Uh, my mother used to beat me pretty much every day. And um, most of the times when she did that, she said, you know, you know, I'm going to kill you. Or oh. um, there were times when my mother, you know, she held me at knife point um, to, you know, to, according to her behave. I mean, I was just, I mean, I was a little hyper, I was a little wild as a, as a child, but she just wanted somebody that just was, you know, very still, you know, and it's tough when you're four or five years old. Still and quiet. Um, yes. Right. So since I wasn't naturally still in quiet, they, you know, she would, she'd beat me. So I would become that, you know, so I was a very, very shy, very to myself because my family would threaten me or they would threaten people if, if they suspected that anybody had any, like, uh, they were curious about us, you know, it wasn't good to be curious because, you know, either my mother or my father would, would threaten you. You know, and then and they meant it. Like if you know, they, their threats were were legitimate. It wasn't like you know, you know, don't get involved or else. They really meant it. You know, those that's the kind of people that they were. And then so, I grew up like that for many years, for probably like ten years, until uh, one day the abuse stopped. It first stopped with my father. My father, um, again, was a violent alcoholic. He would. He would beat up my mother pretty much every day, every night when he'd come home from work. He would he would work all day and he'd come home. That's what we would have every night at 11, 12, 1 in the morning. Then he would beat me up on the weekends because usually the weekends he was off. And so <clears throat> the difference between the beatings from him and my mother is that my mother's went on forever because she just wasn't she was strong, but she wasn't strong like he was. But my father's were very quick because he would knock me out. So I started getting knocked out at like three, four, five years old. Um, my parents, my parents, they would they would come at me full force and they would do it by surprise. I would be playing with my toys and they would just come at me. You know, I would have no, I'd have no idea what was going on. And so wait, hold uh, on. So this this is this is a typical domestic violence um, type of scenario where you're not hit necessarily because of a cause and yeah. you're, so you're walking on eggshells because anytime yeah. you can you can get hurt yeah and so you yeah. had that your mom had yeah. it but then you also got it right right so you know typical day in my house was you know 
my mother would beat me at least once a day and at least once a day she would do some sort of you know sexual abuse my father would only beat me up on the weekends because he was home and then he would also do sexual abuse so the difference was that my father would knock me out he came in quickly you know three four three four hits and i was out i was out i mean he he you know because he was he was a strong guy and then he would abuse me you know, he had to make sure that I was knocked out, you know, for me to be abused. You were, you, un know? you were unconscious. Yeah, either unconscious or close to it or close to it. And so my, and it, it was quick because of that. And um, my mother's was different. My mother's would just go on and on and on. She would beat me and beat me and beat me. You know, she used to like to lock me in the closet, um, flick the lights on and off and just, you know, whip me with belts and, and, and wires and things. And, I remember I used to hide under like shoe boxes and dresses and things so I wouldn't get hurt. But she would just go on and on and on for hours. And then a lot of times after that, she would give me, you know, um, sexual abuse. She, my mother was a homophobe and she would always question me almost every day if I was gay. She would ask me, and by, you know, I'm not gay, but my mother would ask me. She was always always curious you would say you know do you like boys do you touch boys if you are gay you know you can't lie to me I can I can tell that I can tell if you are if you're not and if you are I'll make sure you know I'll convert you so my mother would you know she would do things and when I was a kid when I was like four years old five years old I had no idea what gay was like I, <laughs> I was so she, in kindergarten oh elementary goodness. school they hadn't explained that to me you know yeah you get sex education in middle school not in kindergarten Right. So, <laughs> so, so my mother took this. But hold on, for, for the audience who can't see you, you're a young guy. So about how old are you? I'm 40. Okay. So, you know, you grew up during the time. The yeah. In the eighties when, um, you know, we knew what gay was and it wasn't, you know, quite the crime that it used to be. Let's put it that way. It was still wasn't there yet, but it wasn't you know, it was starting to become like, this is just part of like the spectrum of humanity. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but she but, was on, oh, yeah. Yeah, it, in, in my home, it was forbidden. It was forbidden and, and to, you know, to make matters worse, you know, so my mother was in the closet, okay? And my father was in the closet and, and my brother was also in the closet. So my mother feared that, you know, they didn't want a son. They actually didn't want any children. I was supposed to be an abortion, so I left that out. But I was supposed to be an abortion. And so by the miracle of God and because of family members and friends, I was born. Um, but they didn't want another boy because my mother believed they'd be gay. And if they were gay, it was the ultimate sin, you know, because then she'd have to figure out a way to convert me. And, you know, if that didn't work, that, you know, I, I say it all the time. I mean, you know, thank God that, you know, I made it because like, if I would have been born gay, my mother would have found that my mother would have definitely killed me. Without a doubt, my mother would have killed me. I, I, I could, I could assure you that because she hated my brother with a, with a pat. It was terrible. And my mother, when we'd go out, she would gay bash people and she would try to, to teach me that, you know, make fun of this guy, say this to him, you know, and my mother was very full of hate. She hated everybody. And she tried but, to, but teach you're saying that she was, wasn't heterosexual herself. No, my mother loved women. My mother, she, she, she was the one who taught me. I mean, if we want to go a step further, I mean, basically my mother, she turned me 
later on as an adult into a sex addict because of the activities that she made me engage in. Um, but she was the one from a young age that when we would go, I would go out all the time with her, she would hit on women. And she would tell me, you know, this is how you want to, you know, get yourself a woman. You know, you want to make sure she looks like this and talk to her like this and, and touch her like this. And as a little kid, like I didn't, you know, it was weird because like, I'm a little kid. I'm like five, six years old. I didn't understand that, you know, no, but, no, but my, my, my mother gave me sex education in elementary school, five, six years old. I kept telling her, I don't know what gay is. She's like, well, I'll, you know, I'll show you, you know, and my mother educated me on, on sex, period. Mm. You know, and um, that, that's what I grew up with. My mother, gave, unfortunately, my mother gave me intense sex education um, as a young child. On, on, the job, on the job training sexual sex education. Yeah, it was a mix. And my mother had, you know, magazines and she had movies and they made me, you know, they made me watch things, you know, sometimes mm. as a family. And then, you know, later on when I was able to to understand what all that meant, like it was it was pretty freaky. It was pre pretty freaky because I started learning all these things at, you know, five, six years old. And I couldn't really understand it until I was like 12 or 13. You know, mm. so she she tried to turn me into this child sex addict which was which was not possible it was not possible you know um and then like i said one day the abuse ended it ended in different stages my my father's ended because he was finally caught for drunk driving my father was an alcoholic 24 7 he used to drink and drive every day he used to work drunk he used to fight people all the time. Everybody was scared of him because he's very aggressive. He used to hurt people. Um, and he had been involved in many hit and runs and many assaults. They have been looking for him for a very long time. And so one time he finally did a hit and run and they finally caught him. Mm -hmm. And so the judge wanted to send him to prison. But because I went with my mother and we had a good lawyer, we had to go talk to the judge you know, the judge said in court, you know, I could send you away upstate for years, but because you're the breadwinner and you have a young son and a wife, you know, I'm going to, you know, give you a fine or whatever and, and put you on probation. So he had to go to mandatory rehab. And my father lost his license for like five years. He only had a work license. And the, the cops were always pulling him over. They had automatic probable cause all the time. And so after that rehab, like he never drank again. And the, the funny thing about it was that like my father, if he didn't drink, he was great. Yeah. yeah. I, I never really saw that when I was a kid, but I saw that that after that, that he was so close to going to jail that he went into the rehab, that he never drank again, that he was great. He would have never abused me. You know, he would have never done it. He would have never abused my mother. But to, to take it a step further, my father, he would say that he hated women because of the fact that he used to be uh, my grandmother's, which is his mother's lover and, and sex slave ever since he was a boy mm -hmm. until he was a teenager. And so he got out of that situation because of my mother, because they, they got together. But neither one liked each other. Neither one of them liked each other. They just, they each did it to escape their own house. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My, my mother hated my father always. Before, as soon as she met him, she hated him. She didn't like him because he liked men, because he, in certain sense, he was a mama's boy, um, because he was violent, because he was alcoholic. And also 
I come from an indigenous background. My father, you know, his side, they're full indigenous. So my mother hated him because he was indigenous. My, you know, that's just the way we grew up. And um, here in the United States, indigenous? Uh, no, Amazon. Okay, so what country are your parents um, originally from? My parents are originally from Colombia. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm, no. I, I'm part Colombian. Oh, okay. Not genetically, right. not nationality, not legally, but it's in me because I lived there when I was 17 for a year. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. So my um my wait, my but first of all, first of all, we're in Colombia. I lived in Medellin. Um my parents grew up in Cali. Okay. And I but, haven't been there yet. But um, my my uh, my father's parents were originally from the jungle. They're right. originally from the Amazon. They were um, forced to assimilate. Right. You know, my my grandmother was very tribal, and so they, they they there was a certain time where they would capture indigenous people and they would force them to become like you know I guess civilized if you want to say that. And so she went through all that. Mm -hmm. um, and so but your you know, grandmother who had your dad as a sex slave yep yeah 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 i wonder yeah. what happened to her during the assimilation um i could tell you i mean she um she was forced into prostitution she was forced into prostitution for a long time and then um that's how my my father ended up having a lot of half brothers and sisters all over the place but yeah, she did that for a long time until she generated enough money and then she went into business. Um, she used to do livestock and she had um, a store where she sold things and she became very business oriented, but she was, uh, she was forced into prostitution after the assimilation. Yeah. And just also one thing, this, this isn't exactly on topic, but one thing that that I learned when I lived in Colombia is how much, how basically racist Colombians are against the Afro-Colombians and the indigenous Colombians. Yeah. And even though there's all of this racial mixing, there's still this incredible status ranking yeah. that happens. Yeah. And, and so, so your two parents that, um, that, that came together, that was actually against a source kind of social norm, right? It was. It was my 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 grandmother, my father's mother hated my mother because she was white. My my mother's background. They were originally all from Europe. Yeah. You know, they were originally from from Spain and Italy, and so she hated them because they represented the white man. My father didn't really care. He was very very neutral. And then my mother's family hated my father because. They would say, you know, Indio, Indio, get this Indio out of here. Right. You know, what are you doing with the Indio? And then my mother the whole time, she would tell me. And when I was a kid, you know, I married an Indio. I, I married a freaking Indio, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And then so my mother, she made me ignore that I had indigenous roots. That was one. And two, she made me ignore that I had Colombian roots. So because I was born in America. So she's like, you're American. That's it. Mm -hmm. you're, from, you're from New York, you're from America, and that's it. Forget about your roots. Forget about all that. You only care about America. So I and just so, did a, I just did an interview with a, a guy 
about adoption and and how and reunification and how you know these reconnecting with these genetic roots that is just part of the human experience you don't yeah. just become somebody else just because you're in a different environment yeah yeah and and that's actually something that i've been i've been discovering ever since i committed suicide so i committed suicide uh, um friday the 13th october 2017 uh yeah very uh that was the last time that was the last time that okay. that's the last time that i actually died i mean i had been doing it like every two three years and, and i'm a person that unfortunately previously death was always following me i had a lot of car accidents i had a lot of physical fights i had a lot of um, fights with my family that left me close to dead um i've had accidents aside from car accidents that have left me near dead even covid i had it in 2020 almost killed me as well so every every couple of years i I, yeah, I was dying, unfortunately. Well, and, um, and all of those, all of those getting knocked out by your dad, any one of those could have killed you. You know, yeah, you don't, you yeah. don't just like sustain head injuries and always live. No, no, I'm, I'm very, I'm very thankful. You know, I, I speak to a lot of people that have foundations and organizations and events that are held in memory for children that have died because of abuse. Yeah. And it is a terrible thing. Even just shaking your kid. Yeah. It, it makes the brain like bang around inside and you yeah. can die just from shaking your kid, much less hitting them in the head. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm always thankful and I'm always amazed that from all those beatings that I got from my mother and from my father that I'm, I'm in pretty decent condition. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I have brain damage. You know, I, I have it. There are certain things that I cannot do. But I'm very thankful that I've been able to to function pretty normally. And I'm very saddened and angered by little kids that get killed because of abuse. That, that's a horrible thing. And that, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm starting to really get involved with, you know. Or, or even just little kids that end up with severe mental illness, depression, because oh, of yeah. the environment that they grew up in, that, that you know, you just, the human being can't, um, well, they, the, Anyway, I believe that a lot of mental illness does come from the environment. Yeah. And and, yeah, and, I'll, I'll... and and stress. Stress just does weird stuff to your body. And now it's known that stress is actually like a contributing factor to all kinds of physical diseases, too. Yeah. And that's that's actually like part of my that's actually the underlying current in my work is to have people learn how to love themselves so that they can be less stressed and enjoy life more so that those around them can can be less stressed and suffer less because you know when we're when we're not happy with ourselves other people suffer too yeah yeah we have to love ourselves more and we have to love others we have to spread the love that was one of the one of the things God told me, you know, before I came back was to that the world needed more love. Make sure you spread more love, make sure others spread more love, that the world needs more love. So that is something also that I, I, I function a lot. And I'll say it a lot that, you know, I love everybody. You know, I'm the complete opposite of like my mother, for instance, that she hates everybody. I love everybody. You know, she never liked anybody. The only thing she liked was a, was a, a beautiful woman. That was the only thing that she liked. Any, everything else, she'd criticize everybody. 
and she tried to get me to do that. I hated that. And I, I got hurt for that, but I wouldn't do it. I just, I wouldn't do it. I would not, you know, insult somebody because they were gay. Like I, I, I couldn't do it. I could never do it, you know, but that's how she was, mm -hmm. you know. What year, so she, did, what year did they immigrate from Colombia? Cause I know when I was there in 1976, being gay was just like the worst. They left in the early, like around 70 or 71. Yeah, yeah no, it, it was terrible. It, you know, it was, uh, you know, there was a, a big, uh, a, it was forbidden, you know, and I, in my family, I had a lot of, of, you know, gay cousins and, and, and people like that. And, um, and they had a, they had it rough. They mm -hmm. had it rough. Mm -hmm. My, my mother never liked them. She, her opinion was, you know, stay away from gay people. You know, they, they, they'll want to touch you or something. And um, I think one of the most horrible things that my mother made me do was that I had um, uh, gay cousins that died from AIDS. And so my mother would force me to go to the hospital every week and watch them. Oh. And so I, I slowly saw them, you know, die. And, you know, I was there when they actually died. And it was a terrible thing because in the beginning, they're talking and everything. And then towards the end, they're just like, they're not even there anymore. And, and, and wait, what age were you at that point? Because this was like uh, late 80s. Like I was probably like seven, eight years old to, until like 10 years old. Somewhere yeah, that's, that's a little that's a little early to it's you know, it's a person's choice how much they want to see of real life like that. Yeah, yeah. no, my, my mother would tell me is like, you know, you want to so be gay? That's what happens to gays, you know, go look at so-and-so, go visit them, go stay there in the hospital for an hour or two. That's what happens to gays. Make sure you don't get involved with them. Make sure you don't become that, you know, that, that was her thing, you know? And it was, it was terrible. It was, it freaked me out for years. Well, yeah. You know? Wow. So, I mean, if there's one thing about watching somebody die because you care about them and you want to support them. And there's another thing about watching somebody in the throes of death because you're being trained. I mean, there's like completely the wrong reason to be with somebody who's dying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but, but from my mother, like, you couldn't expect anything, anything, you know, like, you know, you would expect that because my mother was, she was a very creepy person. She was a very creepy person. She wasn't scared of anything. She hated everything. She was very, very evil, did bad things to people. And, you know, it's like, it, it couldn't get any worse. You know, I, I was compassionate. You know, I was always very friendly to them. I enjoyed their company. You know, I, I tried to be there as supportive as I could, you know. Yeah, it was a, it was a terrible thing. It was a terrible thing. So let's see. So we're running, we're running low on time. Let's see what else I want to know about piecing your story together as it relates to. So you you kind of you never were actually allowed to blossom into your real identity because at such a young age you were being abused, and so you adapted by becoming this shy and quiet person. And but that still wasn't good enough, and they continued to abuse you and. Yeah. And then you 
can I say you became depressed? When, when was your first suicidal? Um... Oh, I, I, I tried as a kid. I mean, I don't remember the, the official ages, but I mean, I tried as a kid. I tried around like, like eight years old to like 10 years. I tried like two or three times. Um, I would try different things. Like I'd, I'd fall off trees or, you know, jump off a roof. I used to play in traffic. Um, I took pills as a, a couple times as a kid. Um, and then just, I just really got hurt with everything that I did. I never really, never really died, you know, but I did attempt many times because it was just, I used to say to myself all the time, I used to tell them like, you know, kill me because they would threaten me. They would say, you know, we're going to kill you. I'm like, all right, do it. You get it over with. And I would tell God, I'm like, is this beating today going to be the last one? If it is, I'm ready. You know, I'm always, I was always ready to die from a young age, mm -hmm. you know? So what does that do to a person's identity? Like, like what was your identity? My, my identity because of those experiences and because of the, the verbal abuse, my mother would tell me all the time during beatings or not beatings, you know, you're worthless, you're good for nothing, you know, we regret having you, should have never been born. You feel worthless, you feel zero. And I had no support anywhere. The only thing I had was God because when I went to school, I wasn't liked at school. I, I, I grew up in a, in a, a white neighborhood, a, a good neighborhood, and they didn't like me because I was Hispanic. Oh, and so I was, I, was, I was bullied, I was discriminated against by students, by teachers, um, neighbors. So I, I didn't really have any outlets. All I had was God. You know, I didn't have any pets. I didn't really have any friends. I just lived in fear and embarrassment and I was worthless, you know, all the way through like age 13, you know, and then one day when the abuse stopped, it first stopped with my father around age 10 and then it stopped with my mother around 13, 14. Then I was out in the world and like, I didn't know what to do with myself because it just, it just, it was a hard stop. My mother stopped doing stuff to me because she didn't get pleasure out of it anymore because I wasn't, I was, I, once I went through puberty, she wasn't interested anymore. She only liked to abuse kids. Mm. So I wasn't, I wasn't a kid anymore. So mm. she, she lost interest. And so I was left with like always expecting abuse and live, still living in fear. And I was embarrassed and I had behavioral problems. I was depressed and I was lost. I was lost in the world from like age 14 to like 27 because I, I originally went after high school to college and then I dropped out twice because I, I just, I didn't like it. And then after that, I was in the work first for a while and I couldn't work anymore. There was no work. So, you know, I was practically homeless. I didn't have any, any, any food, any money, anywhere to live, a car, I didn't have anything. And so um, I was given an opportunity to go back to school, to college. And I took it and I, and, and I went all the way through. And then that's when I started getting my life back a little bit. When I went to college, I went back to college age 26, 27. For the third time. Started, for the third time. And I stayed. Okay. I stay. I, stay, I got another, I got another, a third chance. And that's so why I started on, getting. Hold on. Let me get the, let me get it. So you were, you were almost homeless. You weren't working. I was pretty, I was pretty much homeless. I was pretty much, my family one day, um, I used to live with my family and then one day they got, they used to have real estate. They had real estate in New York. They had real estate out of state. They got good offers. 
they accepted the offers, they took their money and they're like, you know, we're going to be leaving in a couple of days and you're on your own. And that was it. And at that time, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a car. I didn't have I didn't have anything. I didn't have anywhere to live. You know, and meanwhile, you know, they made, you know, a million dollars or more. I didn't get any of that. I didn't ask for it. And I thought, hey, maybe they, you know, give me a little something. I didn't get anything. Hmm. And they so, just they just took they just took off with their money into paradise and, and I was screwed for a while. So where were you sleeping? I would go to friends. I had different friends that I knew where I would stay at places. You know, I was just kind of wandering around, roaming lost until I started finding myself in college. I found myself. I found that I had, you know, personal speaking ability, that I could, you know, do radio, that I could do TV, that people like to talk to me. You know, I started becoming more outgoing and I started engaging in, 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 in some treatment. You know, I started talking to the, some, some of the psychologists. And, um, you know, is, this, started... is this the first time you went for um, therapy around yes. all this? Wow. 2000, at, 2000, at, 2007. Yeah. At, at 27. Yeah. First time. And so when you were doing the speaking, what were you speaking about? Because you weren't speaking about this. No, I wasn't speaking about I was just doing like, you know, I was doing like, you know, college radio, uh, you know, evening news, uh, interviews, commercials. Yeah, I was very involved with like TV, radio in college. So you weren't a so, speaker giving a message of your own. You were you were facilitating other people's messages. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That's what I was doing. Yeah, but I, I I was very good at it, and so you know a lot of the a lot of the students and a lot of the teachers they liked that because a lot of them had a hard time with it. Hmm. You know, so I I started finding myself in college. You know, but I was in denial for years, even though when I, you know, I would in 2007, I would go from 2007 to 2017, I was on and off therapy because I was in denial. I'm like, I could tough it out. Nothing really bad happened to me. You know, all the families are the same. You know, I'm just making a bigger issue out of nothing, you know, because it's all the stuff that my, my mother, she, yep. she, she brainwashed me with. Mm -hmm. But as I was, I was talking to people. And, I, and then it became difficult to find help because some of it was insurance issues. Certain, you know, uh, professionals wouldn't take it. Yeah. And then I came into a situation where I had professionals that would turn me down. Some of them, would, I would talk to them five, 10 minutes and they say, you know, it's not really my area of expertise or I don't want to be involved. Or some of them, I would do one session. They would be like, this was a great session, but I'll have to refer you to somebody else. So I was lost from 2007 to 2017 trying to get help you know and it, it took a, it took a last suicide to to really you know find somebody and thank god the person that i got really helped me thank mm. god because if not if, if i would have kept getting that like you know refer you to somebody else and somebody else you know it would have been terrible but um hold, hold on let me just make a, a public service announcement because this came up in another interview on grief the other day, is that not every therapist is qualified to help you with whatever your topic is. And when they say that you need to go to somebody else, just believe them. You know, it's nothing about you. It's that yeah. they, each person knows what they're, where they're good and where they're, they're not, or where they, what they want to deal with. And this, this grief therapist I interviewed, she's like, you know, even therapists 
very few of them are comfortable helping people through their grief because they aren't comfortable with grief. And so it's, it's really important to, to when you do need help, when you're ready to get help, when you're seeking help, to be very selective. And first of all, do they want to work with you? And secondly, do you want to work with them? Both of those, this isn't like buying popsicles in the store. This is a really important thing to get a good match. Because if you yeah. get the wrong match for whatever reason, then what happens is you decide therapy doesn't work. Yeah. And the thing is, when you get the right match, then you can you can get the freedom you're seeking and the and the and the and the the healing and the separation from the the trauma you can you can like separate that from from every aspect of your life it doesn't it doesn't go away but you sort of find a place to put it in you in a different way is that kind of how it works yeah yeah that that that's what i do i mean i remember when i first started talking about, uh, I mean, it took me, it took me about 12 years to be able to talk to you like this and not cry and not get depressed, not get mad. It took about 12 years to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wasn't comfortable speaking about this with people until about 2019. You just find a place to, to put it. And you, how I tell people all the time, take something negative and make it positive. You know, and that's what I do. That, that's what I talk to people about. You know, yeah, I went through some horrible things, but you can, re you can recover, you can survive, you can become great. You can become very good. You know, I'm one of the, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. First of all, I'm alive. That's one, of the, that's one of the miracles. And two, that I'm, you could say I'm successful. You know, I, I went to college, I became a white collar professional. You know, I'm a professional person. Most people that are abused, they don't end up like that. They become drug addicts or alcoholics or they kill themselves or they become criminals. You know, so I want to come out and I want to sh share my story, the severity of it, and show them that you can move forward and become something great. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that, that these people that have been, you know, abused start living. Uh, let's, you were really on to something. I don't remember what it was. Do you? I was saying that, uh, that I want to show people that, you know, regardless of what kind of abuse you've been through, you can recover and survive and, and live a great life. You know, that, that's, that's one of my missions. You know, I, I don't accept those statistics. And people tell me that, you know, 97%, 98% of uh, abuse victims they don't live a, a, a great life. You know, they're alcoholics, they're drug addicts, they're criminals, they're homeless. You know, I, I can't accept that. I want, I want those numbers to be lower. Now, hold on, because when you were talking uh, um, throughout, I was always wondering, like, did you go into drugs and alcohol? Because that is what is like totally common. Yeah, no, actually, yeah, I, I should, I should, uh, I should state that um, I, I've never became an alcoholic uh, because of the fact that my father was so violent and drunk all the time. I, I couldn't see myself doing it. And also my mother threatened me as a little kid. You will never drink. You will never become an alcoholic. And, you know, she beat me up for it. 
Um, she's like, never touch the stuff. So I never did. And same thing with drugs. She would tell me, you know, stay away from drugs, you know. And so I never touched it. And in the neighborhood I grew up, I mean, I just, I wasn't around people that did that. Um, and so I used, I've only used drugs to kill myself. That's it. I've never used it as recreational, you know. I, I, I'm, or or I'm, even I'm, to cope. No, never. I never did that. I just, um, I guess you could say for coping, like I used to fight. Okay. Was a, a lot of a lot of what I did because I had a lot of anger. Mm -hmm. um, you know, unfortunately, some of it outside the ring, some of it in the ring. But I have been involved with boxing for a good at least twenty years, maybe more than that. Mm. And so, and so, I've always had it as an outlet. Um, boxing, however, the way I used to fight before to how it is now is different. Like I originally got into it because. Like I wanted to hurt people, mm -hmm. you know, where now after my suicide, it's more to, you know, exercise, release some stress, help people, because I do work with some people that have had issues, but I use that as an outlet, you know, for, for many years. But yeah, I mean, luckily I never, I never became an alcoholic like my father was. I, I just saw too much <clears throat> with the beatings and, you know, that he almost went to jail and, you know, I didn't want to be that. How old was he when, when he got spared going to jail? How he old was, were you? How old were you? I mean, I was about like 10 or 11. So you really knew what was going on. Yeah. By then I, by then I knew, I mean, it, it caught me off, off guard because there was just one night he didn't come home mm. and, and we were trying to figure out. And then eventually he called us from jail. And uh, it was a it was a pretty scary thing. I had to go in there, and they brought him in in a you know jumpsuit and a chain gang and everything. Mm. And then the the police are telling us, you know, don't look at them, don't talk to them, whatever. And then you know the the judge called us up, my mother and I, and we had to go talk to him. And you know he was somewhat compassionate. Although after that, my mother said you should have gone to jail because my mother hated my father. In the next book that I, I I've I've written two books. I haven't published them, but in the in the next book, I talk about it. Like when I was a kid, um, down the block from my house used to be a gun shop, mm. and my mother used to go in there all the time, and she always she she always wanted to she always wanted to buy a handgun. I remember we used to go there every you know a couple of nights a week because she couldn't deal with my father, and I don't know how she never bought it. Right. They were they were pretty much begging her. I remember she she wanted to get a 38 uh, snub nose Smith and Wesson silver and keep it in her handbag. But, you know, because the beatings were so bad that she wanted to um, she wanted to shoot him. Yeah, that's 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 part of my childhood. <laughs> I give you a little bit of information of how my childhood was. See, I could laugh about it now. It almost sounds like a bad sitcom. And that, that's the progress that I've made through, you know, 12 years of therapy. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, thank God. You know? what, what are some final words you'd like to, or some takeaways? Yeah, yeah. Regardless of, situa of your situation, find ways to become positive. Find ways, whatever it is. If we always have a choice, right? The glass is always either half full or half empty and it's up to yeah. us, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, make yourself positive. Do activities that make you positive. Do, do a bunch of them. Surround yourself with positive people. Talk about your problems. Talk about your issues. If you're a victim right now or you know somebody that's a victim, go to somebody and, and talk to them. Tell them, a neighbor, a coach, a teacher, a doctor, uh, an aunt, an uncle, tell somebody. Tell somebody. If it's yourself or if it's somebody that you suspect, like tell somebody. You know, I slipped through the system. I slipped through the system because in those times, it's not how it is today. And because I lived in fear because of who my parents were, you know, and. Yeah, but all, know, I, mean, I mean, in general, all kids who are being sexually abused and even physically abused are living in fear and are not telling authorities with good reason, because that fear is a reality because every day they're at risk of you know, in their mind, dying, which in fact. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and, and in, um, you know, I think about it sometimes and it's like, I know for a fact that if like, I really would have came out and told the teacher that one of those teachers would have, would have got killed. I know for a fact, the way my mother was and everything and my father, like, you know, I, I know. So on some levels, I'm like, kind of happy I didn't say anything because, you know, they would have got themselves hurt, you know, but to these times it's different. We have to find a way to, to raise the awareness and get people to speak out, you know, and for people that have stories and they haven't come forward, they should come forward. You know, they should come forward and they should seek, seek therapy. Therapy is a wonderful thing. If you find a great professional, it's a wonderful thing. If I wouldn't have found that great professional in my life, who knows where I would be today? I have no idea. I, we would not be here. I'll tell you that much. Right. <laughs> and, and one thing I want to add too, because I worked as a part of a sexual assault response team in my hospital's emergency room. I was a social worker. And so I had to listen to all of the the police interrogations of every last thing that happened in the 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 assault. And at one point, I, I, I started to have compassion for these people who were attacking the other person, because people don't people aren't born doing that kind of stuff to people. And so this is my message also is that the people who are doing the abusing, they need help too. Yeah. They are not bad people, they're doing bad things. And especially when it comes to child sexual abuse, they are among us. I, I went to this training as a, you know, continuing ed for social work. And it's like, what happens is, is that when, when a person is, when a person who sexually abuses children, they don't do it to just one kid. They do it to, you know, like, let's say five. And then a percentage of those five kids who are abused, let's say two, out of the five grow up and they abuse five more. And so what's happening in society, yes, we're talking about it more. Yes, we're more aware of it. And at the very same time, the rates of abuse are increasing exponentially. And so as a society, if we don't start to recognize that these people who are committing these criminal acts also need help, the problem's not going to be solved. 
it's not just putting get, helping the people who are the survivors or you use the word victim i use the word survivor because they're still alive right. Right. um it this is a this is a comprehensive thing and those people who are there abusing they are among us every day we rub shoulders with them and they aren't speaking out because you know i mean where is the help for them there's not even enough help for the survivors, much less the perpetrators. So it's, this is just a huge issue that that I'm so glad that you are speaking out on it. But I wanted to add my two cents that that we don't yeah. want to vilify and, and see and your whole interview, you have had such a compassionate energy towards your parents. They've done they've messed up your life you almost dead so many times and yet you aren't in hatred it's like you kind of you have this compassion and that's what you know the more that we can like sort of understand that these people everybody has a right to get better is i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah yeah and then it, it, again it's all because of um you know therapy has has made me into a better person and after my last suicide, God has made me into a better person. And I'm finally, you know, after 35 years, becoming, you know, the person I should have been when I was born. It took a long time. If, but if you want to know the real me, the real me is, is now. Mm -hmm. You know, the, in the past has been like, just fake me or empty me. You know, I was lost. I was lost in the world. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, everything was percolating to turn you into the you that just showed up today for this interview, the yeah. you that shows up every day. And I'm not saying we wish these things on anybody. And the thing is, is life gives us lemons and we can make lemonade. And, and I know that sounds like totally cliche and it is, but the thing is, is that in, in Buddhism, they say life's a thousand joys and a thousand sorrows. Yeah. And so it's like, what do we do with those sorrows? They're not, they're not there by accident, is I guess is what I'm trying to say. Even though we don't wish any of this on us, that that whatever we're going through in life, it's it's there. And let's see what we're gonna do about it. And so even yeah. though all those, even though like you're now only now coming into who you really are and same with me you know i'm finally coming into you know what all of my experiences have added up to become and and a lot of and so anyway i guess what i'm trying to say is that a lot of these interviews i do is that people end up in this version of themselves that number one they could have never imagined Number two, they would have never been that version had these things not happened. And number three, that version is a really, really valuable asset to the world. Yes. Am, am I tooting my own horn? Um, but um, no. yeah, it's, it's, it's like um, anybody who's in the middle of your identity loss, your transition, your forced transition, because some, you know, catalytic event, or, or in your case, like from childhood, this long term chronic event of abuse. It's all like grist for the mill. And there is another side. 
there's a threshold where you can go into a new life and it's so exciting to hear how, how you yeah. are right now can you just like give, give a little summary of how you are who you are right now i mean i know you did that in the beginning but just yeah. want one more yeah i mean i am a um extremely positive person i'm a very helpful person i enjoy helping others i'm social i'm outgoing i'm public like i had said before you know i host events a variety of events around new york city and the tri-state area now beyond because uh, you know since i've been going public with uh with some of these things that i experienced as a childhood i'm starting to get calls nationally Mm -hmm. You know, so there are going to be some events that I'm invited to host, that I'm invited to, to speak, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. I'm looking forward to that. I want to travel, you know, around the country and, and, and talk to people about it. You know, I, my goal is to help people. That is my goal. Um, I never had that goal. I didn't have that goal until, you know, five years ago. But it's really until recent, like, like I said, 2019, 2020, that I discovered that, you know, this is the way to, to help people. And so by speaking you know, your story, by sharing your story. Yeah. Now, tell me, yeah. I forget whether I got the answer or not. What was the catalyst that made it happen at that point in your life? To go public? Yeah. Well, I know that since 2007, many therapists had been telling me to write a, write my story, write my book. Okay. Um, so I had been encouraged. They, they didn't want to help you, but they wanted you to write the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They had encouraged me to, to write a book about my story, Okay. you know, and I kept hearing that over the years from many different mental health professionals and other people that knew a little bit about it. Um, and it went all the way until, you know, my last therapist that kept telling me, you know, write a book, release a book, you know, it should really be out there. So I have, I have written it. It's not published, but I have written two books. They're not published, but they will be. But, you know, at the advice of, of mental health professionals and, uh, you know, God, that I, I decided to, to go public. And like I said, it's very recent. Mm -hmm. It's very recent. Like I would have never, I, I could never, I could never have thought of doing this like 10 years ago. There was just no way. Like I, like thank I, I say you know thank God for therapy because there's there's just no way I could have just came out and and just started telling people my story or whatever because it's hard for people for some people that like like I come across some people that you know they grew up good and you know they didn't have any of that in their family and you know some of them can't hear it some of them can't listen to it because mm -hmm. it's you know it's the complete opposite of you know what they they grew up as but I'm real you know, I, I, I like to, I like to be real with, with, you know, what happened to me because somebody has got to talk about it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Well, well, thank you for being so strong. This is so great. Um, where can people find you online? Yeah. So I have my website, which is let's survive together.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me there, Ray Maestra on LinkedIn. I have a YouTube channel. Let's survive together. Also, I have to, I have to work on the video part. I've made the videos, but I haven't edited them, so I have to do some editing. But I'm on there. You know, you can email me through my website. You can email me on LinkedIn, and I'm looking to to network with other 
professionals, with organizations, with survivors, anywhere, whoever needs help, whether it's via Zoom or via actual live events. You know, I'm going to be part of uh, on October 29th. There is a concert for uh, human trafficking mm. in North in North Carolina, and then there's a th there's a telethon on October 30th in North Carolina that um, is to raise awareness for human trafficking. I'm starting to be involved with a lot of those organizations. So uh, just things like that I'm doing, but they can contact me through any of those channels, you know? Great. Well, thank you, Ray. Thank you so much for joining me today. And yeah. you've, been, you've been listening to Bold Becoming and I'm Julie Brown. Hey there. The value that you got from this today, take it into your heart add value to it in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others and make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one -on -one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers. The link's in the show notes.